0: We are in Ephesians chapter 5, focusing on verse 3 and 4. We're teaching through the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians 5, 3, and 4, but we're going to read and actually look at today a little more than that, 1 through 5. So if you can, I'm going to ask you to stand right now as I read Ephesians 5, 1 through 5. If you can't, I fully understand uh, that, but read along with us. The reason we stand is to really just physically display the fact that we're giving reverence and respect to the Bible, uh, which we sit under all the time, that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God. Ephesians 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality... That is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we um, come before you and I'm going to say what so many people in this room are feeling. That verse is intimidating and at many points scary. Uh, So God, we bring our fear to you. I uh, just hold out for the truth that perfect love casts out fear. That Last verse in verse 5, that the sexually immoral um, or idolaters have no inheritance in the kingdom of God make many of us feel like outsiders. So God, I pray that you'd help us make sense of it, um, understand it, and apply it the way you tell us to. God, I believe what you say about your word, that it's sharp and it can judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And God, we confess to you right now that there is nobody nobody that we can dupe like we can dupe ourselves. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So do you know the difference between fashion and style? I'm not necessarily asking you to publicly speak it, but if you want to, you can. Um, But do you know the difference between fashion and style? I actually looked that up this week and it's debated what the difference is, but generally it's this that fashion is very external. By external, here's what I mean, that fashion is keeping up with the clothery Joneses, if you will. So there's an outside reality that comes out in the windows of the mall at clothing stores or in the metaphorical windows of the internet and says, this is fashion and you are in fashion if you keep up with the Joneses of clothes. Where style, and this is what we wanna be, right? Styling and profiling, like style is more internal, they say, which basically means who are you internally? And you let that express itself externally with your clothes. So most people that are really high up in what would be called fashion would advocate for style because style has to do with identity with who you are. Now, here's the interesting thing I'll say about identity. If style has to do with identity, identity really has to do with family. We're going to come back to that in a minute, but let me say this about style. Style can be used, the word can be used in other ways as well, like styles of management, a style of an organization. So Chick-fil-A has a style in which they do business and you can't own a Chick-fil-A just by having enough money to buy a Chick-fil-A. You have to fit their way. You have to fit their cadence, if you will, their style, their culture. So organizations have styles to them, and it would be called culture. There's a a famous leadership guru named Peter Drucker. How many of you guys have ever heard that name? Peter Drucker. He's a leadership guru, and he's very famous for having a line that says, culture eats strategy for breakfast every time. Culture eats strategy for breakfast every time. Now he speaks to organizations, and I wanna say to you, many of you may have leadership in some kind of organization. All of you participate in organization because it's human life. But let me just say this, families are organizations. And I know people who really try to set out goals for their family and strategies for their family. But what Drucker's saying is that culture is actually what you live out. It's the what you do, not just what you say. And he's saying your culture that you set, that you live into, will eat strategy, words for breakfast every time. It'll eat plans for breakfast every time. And what that is, is that's the style, the identity, See that so I'm using very much style, identity, culture and a way very much together. But I said this that identity ultimately in individuals and with us comes from family. When my wife and I first started dating and I took her to Denver, she asked this question of, are you guys Italians? And I thought, well, I don't know. My skin's kind of darker like an Italian. I'm kind of good looking like people say Italians are. <laughs> But no, my name is Johnson, and actually it was John Stunn, which is more of a Scottish name, and when they came over on the boat, per se, they dropped the T to be Johnson. So I'm really more UK-oriented, so Wales, England, not so much England, more Welsh, Scottish and Irish. So I'm not, not Italian. Why would you ask if, if we're Italian? She's like, you guys all sit at a table and talk at the same time about totally different things. And I was like, well, that's just the Johnson way. Like there's a way in which we go about things that you get comfortable with. There is a way when it comes to families. And here Paul is saying, there's a way to live when you're in the family of God. When you're in what the Bible calls the church, which just isn't a building or a service that you attend, but it's the people that you are a part of. There's a father and the father is God. And Paul says, therefore, verse chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Imitate God as beloved children. So he's saying you have a family identity. You are children. God so loved you, and John says this in 1 John, that he calls you children and children of God so we are based upon the work Christ has done, which is what he goes on to say is, listen, imitate God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So here's what he's saying. There's a style in the kingdom of God. Like there would be a management style. There is a style that has to do with your identity and the identity is based upon God himself himself imitate god mimic god my mom talks about mimicry a lot when she's with us out from denver or when we're with her in denver my mom uh, has this story about when i was a young kid um, probably about five or six years old and she talked to me and she's like you could never ever sit still ever and there's this story about she was going in to buy my grandmother Yadro. It's like this um, porcelain, uh, kind of a sculpture art piece that's actually out of Valencia, Spain. My grandmother, my mom's mother, loved Yadro. So she was going to buy her a Yadro set for her birthday. And as she walked into the store, there's, it's porcelain. So porcelain's what? What? Breakable. So if you have a fidgety child, you do what my mom did. And she said, Tyler, stay at the door. Don't you dare come in this store or I will destroy you. Right? And then she said to my sister, Carrie, you could come in, but you need to stand by him so he doesn't end up coming in the store. So my sister, who's about three and a half years older than me, stays with me outside and she's like, stay outside. My mom walks in and I can see her looking at stuff and I'd see her pick up a bigger piece and then she'd kind of look at it and set it down. And I'm like, wow, the big pieces must be good. So I'm kind of watching, you know, watching her do it. She's moving through and all of a sudden I'm like, she's been in there forever. My sister's like, Tyler, it's been like three minutes that's forever. What is she doing? I'm going in. She's like, "You will not go in. I'll go in. So my sister walks in, and then I just kind of sneak in behind her, and I look at the big stuff, right? Because my mom's been looking at the big stuff, she'd look at it and put it down, and my mom starts checking out, and the next thing she hears, tsh! So my mom looks back, and I'm like, "That is not my mom. She's a different creature. Look at her face. Like, that's a different, I don't even know if that's a human right there. She is beet red. Her eyes are like fiery burning. And the owner comes over and looks, and oh, it's okay, it's okay. And I'm like, mom, or whatever you are, it's okay. Like, yeah, it's okay. The owner just said it's okay. My mom goes, no, I'm buying it. And I'm like, you put every other one that was this size down. How are you going to buy it? I'm going to buy it. And here she says this to the owner. I'm going to buy it and I'm going to keep it broken, and I'm going to put it in a box, and on his wedding day, I'm going to give him it. (laughs) And and then I'm going to wish upon him a child just like himself. (laughs) Now, here's the deal. Haley and I get married on June 28th of 2002. That's the right year, right, babe? 2002. June 28th, 2002. And my mom at the rehearsal dinner goes, I have something to say, and she, this sick woman pulls out the box. (laughs) And she says, I'm placing upon you, I'm giving this gift, and I wished upon you a child just like yourself. So we had a kid at three years old that was like, (laughs) right, jumps. He's our 11-year-old son, Yale, and he doesn't stop. And I thought, well, at three, he does something. And now he's 11, and he hops, and he wakes up at 6.15. What are we going to do today, right? Why isn't there an agenda? Let's go at this. And I'm like, Mom, right? Like, (laughs) But the kid mimics me. So she'll always be like, this kid is a 100% direct DNA replica of you. Like it was just shot into the kid, right? Like, I don't know what happened to Haley's part, but this is like 100% him. Now, here's the amazing part of this. The gospel, when we believe it, says actually God comes to dwell within us and that we dwell in him. Not just that we believe something, but that the DNA of God was transferred into us in a way, the Bible would say that he is more truly in me than I am even in my son. And then he says, and you have to work consistently to abide in me that I would remain in, in you and you in me and then and only then and there and only there will you bear the fruit that I'm calling you to do. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, imitate, mimic God. Now, let me ask this question. If we're called to imitate and mimic a God who the Bible says is unseen... How do you think we do that? Because kids mimic, right? YouTube videos go viral and we put them on Facebook and they go all over the place based upon acting like adults, but they mimic what they see. How do we mimic that which we don't see? Jesus is God. And here's an even, not better, but I love it. It's a great addition. It's not that Jesus is God. God is like Jesus. Hear that, okay? Imitate God is like Jesus. If we're going to mimic God, we follow Jesus. That's actually where the word Christian came from. I was actually in theological education and sat in a class with a man named John Del Husay, whose father, Daryl Del Husay, pastored at Scottsdale Bible for decades. And John is still one of the favorite professors at Phoenix Seminary. And he told this story that The way in which Christians got their name, which the Bible says they were first called Christians at this place called Antioch, but there was a cultural thing that was happening, that there were people around who would mimic the king named Herod and many other people. and These were people that looked at Herod and tried to talk like Herod and wanted to walk like Herod and dress like Herod and they would try to follow in Herod's footsteps literally and they said, oh, they're like little Herods, they're Herodians. If you've ever read the Bible, you'll read about the Herodians. So when these people were trying to mimic Jesus and therefore be imitators of God, and they were trying to speak the way Jesus spoke, to do what Jesus said, to walk the way Jesus walked, even at times to wonder, should we dress the way Jesus dressed? People looked at him and they said, oh, they're like little Christs. They're Christians. Which means us trying to do what Jesus said Us trying to walk like Jesus walked, us trying to talk like Jesus talks is essential to being a Christian. Now, we can't do it without the work that he did and then applies to us, but it's essential to being a Christian. This is why C.S. Lewis has this great line where he says, you sitting in church no more makes you a Christian than me standing in a garage makes me a car. So hear this very clearly. What Paul's saying and what C.S. Lewis is trying to pick up on is the statement of just because you sit here in church and you come to worship or you go to a small group or you read theology books doesn't make you a Christian. A Christian is one whom God in his love and in his power places into you the reality of his very self and draws you into himself and says live like me because you're a beloved child of God. Mimic me. Walk with me. There's a, what they call spiritual formation, which is people that really help us go, how do we actually become like Jesus? There's a man named Dallas Willard who is famous in this teaching. And he has a phrase and he says, Christianity fundamentally is being with Jesus, learning to be like him. I love that because it's so simple. I like reading, I'm kind of into theology at some level, and as many of you would know, sometimes it's just way too many words. I love the reality that Christianity is being with Jesus, learning. Not that you're perfect, not that you get it immediately, but the Christianity is being with Jesus, learning along the way to be like him. But you understand the goal is to imitate God as dearly beloved children. Now you go, well how does God Love, because that's the way he says. He says the style of God. If you want to know what's in style with God, it's love. If you want to know what the identity of God is, it's love. God is love. Therefore, love as he loved, who gave himself for us. So here's the reality. In contrast to the world we live in and you in the way you're tempted to live is that the world says grasp for you. Just do it. You, some of you are more courageous than others. Grasp. Grasp for me. That's the way of the world. Grasp for you where the way of God is give for others. Don't grasp for you. Give for others. Here's the f- focus. Imitate God as dearly beloved children and give on behalf of others and change and turn around from everything the world is telling you to grasp for yourself, He now goes on and he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And then this scary verse. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or who is covetous... That is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So let's break this down. He's starting and he's saying, if this is in style, the way of love that gives for others doesn't grasp for themselves. If that's what's in style, he goes, what's out of style? What isn't in the way of us? And he says, ultimately, what isn't in the way of us is grasping for ourselves. And we do this through sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness, which is greed. So he's saying there's a way in which you communicate what we are, but there's also, you have to understand that there are these things in the world. And listen to this phrase, because this is massively helpful. It's a phrase that's actually used in brain science, and it's this statement that human beings have unconscious, unconscious learned behavior. This is when you're around a culture or a way that that which you look at and experience on an ongoing basis shapes you to do things you may not even know you're doing and oftentimes don't. I had that in baseball. I grew up in a dugout. My father is a very prominent Baseball coach. He's a prominent amateur baseball coach, which means 18 and under. So he's coached US national teams He's coached massive all-star teams that go around the countries and he's always worked in professional baseball because if you know anything about baseball they Scout 18 and under substantially because they can go to the draft So I was in dugouts all the time from the time. I was really little so I learned language. I shouldn't use right I learned imagery I shouldn't be thinking about, all of these kind of things, but there was another thing you learn in baseball. If you see in Major League Baseball games, there's a moment when a guy will make like the third out of an inning, and he'll hit first base, and he's out, and he'll take off his helmet, wham, and he'll throw it on the ground, and the thing just bounces. At times, it may come back and hit him in the face, rarely, but when it does, you're kind of like, whoa. So he'll throw it, boom, it hits, or a pitcher will get ripped is what they call it, I mean, he got hit really hard. And he'll go in the dugout, he'll take a water bottle, like a huge one, the huge Gatorade ones, throw it across, the water goes everywhere, and then sometimes he'll go up and boom, punch the back of a brick wall. And then that night you'll see on the bottom line, so-and-so pitcher is out on the disabled list for seven weeks with a broken hand. And you're like, I know why. <laughs> you don't win against a brick wall, right? So he broke his hand. Well, there was this moment I was gonna play in a game about the age of my sons, so somewhere between 10 and 12, and we were gonna play the Denver Reds, and the Denver Reds were fantastic. They looked like ASU, right? They were maroon and gold, but they were called the Reds, And I was on a team called the Zephyrs, which was actually the AAA team in Denver at the time. So I was told I was going to pitch against the Denver Reds. And I was so excited. I couldn't sleep that night. I was up. And I'm like, I'm going to dominate this team. They think they're good. I'm going to dominate them. Now, in reality, what happened is I got dominated. And that's where the story goes. So I come out in the very first inning. And I'm pitching. And I mean, like right away, base hit up the middle, double in the gap, triple in the gap. And I am just angry, right? Well, finally, I get out of the the inning, and this game I was really excited for as well because my dad was coming to the game. My dad and I are really, really close. So he's sitting in the stands, and I get out of the inning, and I walk into the dugout, and these were chain link fence dugouts, right? So these are the ones that, like, moms can walk up and go, hey, honey, make sure you eat this bar, right? And the kid grabs it and gets a drink or whatever. So they're chain link fence dugouts, and everybody walks in, and I'm so angry, and I've learned something. It's unconscious learned behavior, and I take my glove, and wham! I throw it against the back of the Chain link fence. All of a sudden I look over and I see my dad slowly step out, walk over towards me and I'm like, oh, the wise sage of baseball is gonna come give me advice on how to pitch the second inning in what I did wrong in the first inning. So he goes, Tyler, he's real calm. Yeah, dad, he goes, come here. So I come up close and I'm probably about this far from the chain link fence. And to this day, I don't know how this happened, but his hand like melted through the fence like a superhero movie. And he grabbed me and pulled me straight and my face is literally pressed against the chain link fence. And he goes, son, if you ever, ever do that again, first off, I will embarrass you worse than this times 100. Secondly, you'll never play baseball again as long as you live. Do you understand me? I go, yes. And then he says this, Johnson's don't do that. He lets me go, and I'm like, oh, good Lord. <laughs> so I'm 18, and I'm playing with him, and I get out, and I feel right about ready to throw my helmet, and I look at him, and I'm like, no way. And I, I, I had trained myself. I'd walk up to the helmet, shoom, put it right back in. And I knew that's not what we do. That's what Paul's saying. Look at this. He's going, but sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness must not even be named amongst us as is fitting in the saints. The word named is style. That's not our style. Eugene Peterson in The Message brings it out. But that's literally what the word can mean. It's not our style. It isn't congruent with who God is, who is purity. Now, I love that word. And this is where I'm gonna try to break this down for you guys a little bit. I love that it must not be named among you. And when it says, which are out of place, they're out of style. Because here's what he's saying. He's saying it must not become your identity. It can't become such a thing that people look at you or look at us and go, oh, those are the sexually immoral people. Which certainly doesn't mean hide it, but it does mean that we all struggle with this. Right? If you take sexual immorality and you go, David was a man after God's own heart and he failed sexually tremendously, He goes on and talks about impurity. And all over the Bible, the saints are not the heroes. They're the ones in need of the hero who is God to bring them salvation. There are these moments, but there are these strong, strong moments, even when God begins to speak about greed very directly. And he says, Don't be covetous or greedy, which is idolatry. Right? Do you see that there? Very clearly. He says, the one who is covetous, is an idolater, verse 5. Now, it's important then for us to understand what greed is to make sense of verse 5, because verse 5 is scary. There's a man named Brian Rosner who wrote a book called Greed, and in it he says this, that this is the definition of greed that both the Jewish scriptures and the Christian scriptures adhere to, and it's this that greed is a strong desire to acquire for yourself, to grasp for me. Greed is a strong desire to acquire for myself more and more, whether it be money, possessions, more sex, more body, more attention, all of that's greed. The desire to acquire, grasp for themselves more and more and more because, here's why, we love, trust, trust, and obey those things rather than God. Folks, that's idolatry. Worship isn't just what you sing songs to. In fact, you could argue that isn't even worship. Worship is what you love, what you trust, and what you obey. If you love, trust, and obey things... You can't love, trust, and obey God. Jesus is very clear about that. You can't love both God and stuff. Either you'll love one and hate the other or vice versa. So what's better? What's more true? What's more good? What's more beautiful? That at this moment, let me just stop and get very real for a minute. Every one of these things, I could stop and say to you very clearly, let's do a word study on sexual immorality. In fact, pause on this. There is an app, okay, called Accordance. I'm going to spell it for you. If you, if you want at all to just do a little deeper Bible study or substantial Bible study, this app's for you. It comes up like a Bible app. It's called Accordance, A-C-C-O-R-D-A-N-C-E. And literally, right now, I could pull it up, go to sexual immorality, push on, literally push on immorality, boom, this word study comes up. Shows me the Greek words, the definitions of the words, the different times it's used in the Bible. Folks, people used to have to pay a lot of money and go to seminary to get that, and you can push, like, uh, boom, and know it, right? Just piece of advice. So right now, we could do a word study, sexual immorality, impurity, greed. But here's the reality. I don't care who you are in this room, if you're a Christian or not a Christian, you know what sexual immorality is. You know what it's doing and has done to our culture. You know it's creating movements called Me Too and Church Too. You know that websites are being created as non-religious websites about the destructive nature of the pornography industry. Go look it up. It's called Fight the New Drug. Non-religious, science-based research on what pornography does to the human brain. Folks, this isn't God just going, you know that good stuff? I'm trying to keep it from you. He made the good stuff, folks. He designed your body sexually. He made the stuff of creation. He told us to make, to create, and to sell. He's not anti-money, and he's not anti-sexuality, and he's not anti these things. He's anti the distortion that the enemy does with these things, and he's a loving father who's saying, like my dad, don't go that way. And even deeper than my dad, because he's perfect, he's disciplining those he loves. And he says, this isn't according, this isn't in accordance with who you are or what you've been called to. Let me just for a minute speak to what we've been called to, because this is very important and very profound. In this very book, the Apostle Paul says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Do you know in the Bible that the calling which we have, which was planted into us by God and God alone, is a calling and a reality in our lives that the Bible, 1 Peter says it's something that angels long to look into, literally that they're on their tiptoes, wanting to look into what you and I, if we have faith, have. The calling to which we've been called is a calling that Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus himself is speaking in such a way to say, let your good works so shine before other people that those who don't believe give glory to God because of the way in which we walk, talk, and live. Angels long to look. People who don't believe into it begin to give God glory. And in this very book, the Apostle Paul says very specifically that the calling that we have is one in which the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the devil, the demons, and the rulers of darkness to show that they don't win. Folks, this calling is not minor. And if you're in here and you go, Are you serious? Like, that's what this is called to? And then when you hear God say, it's not even in your identity, we are the beloved children of God, then we don't hear him say sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness must not be named among you, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving and we don't think he's just hammering us. Just the way my dad wasn't hammering us. And I think about this when I think back to my father doing that to me and I think, My dad did that 100%, 100% out of love, Eh, maybe 93% out of love, (laughs) and 7% on don't make me look like a fool. Now, he may not have been justified in the 7% of don't make me look like a fool, but God is. God's is 100% love and 100% about his reputation because his reputation is the way his reputation is the truth. His reputation is life. In him is life, and that life is the light of men. He so loves us that he does this into the church. He so loves us that he disciplines us. This is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, Don't forget the exhortation that addresses us as children of God. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines those He loves. He chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have had to endure. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom what child is there, whom's father doesn't discipline them? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children. You're not sons and daughters. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us. This is what I think about with my dad. We've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, these earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. They did the best they could. But he disciplines us for our good that we would share in his holiness. Folks, he doesn't say, let not any of this be named among you, because he's a miser. Even in this, I have to say this, because some of you, I read that passage and go, actually, I had a horrifically abusive dad, and he didn't do it for my good, right? The bottom line of this is, even if we have fathers who are miserable failures, or well-intended kind of failures, God's perfect, And there are paths laid out for us that we follow that are destructive to us that he's saying, don't even let it be named among you so that you can fulfill your identity and so that you can fulfill your calling. So as I said this, I don't need in here right now, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, to identify you for you what sexual immorality is, what impurity is, or even for that matter, deeply talk about what greed is. I'm convinced we know and I'm convinced of it based on living and based on the Bible, tells me that God has made us with a conscience. (laughs) And we know. But we get duped all the time. And oftentimes the way of God, loving him, trusting and obeying him, becomes scarier for us than doing what we've always done. Because we're content with this unconscious learned behavior. Here's just a couple things for you to know. First off, if you're in this right now, confess it to God. The very man who murdered somebody and killed somebody said, it's against you and you alone if I've sinned. Confess it to God. That just means recognize it. And I believe in all my heart right now, God is stirring things in many of you. Just say, God, I agree with you in this. Secondly, confess it to somebody else. The book of James says, confess our sins to one another that we may be healed. Do you want healing? Do you want life? Do you want freedom? Do you want liberation? Confess it to God and confess it to another person. Now, Thirdly, if it comes upon us again, the Bible's really clear, flee. If you go, I have a compulsive nature to buy on Amazon, right? Stop using Amazon. Oh, but that's impossible. No, it's not. You know it's not. Just stop using it. Get rid of it. Throw the computer out of the way. If I'm compelled to look at websites that display sexual immorality, get rid of them. If I have relationships in my life, flee them. That's what the Bible says. Flee them. If you crave life, flee those. And that's the last thing, pursue. Pursue what's good. Because God's good and he isn't keeping any of this from you. He made it all. He made sexuality. He made creation. He made wealth. Go after it. Let me say this before I close. When you communicate, um, there's ways in which communicators think about how to connect with an audience. Uh, There's a friend of mine, an older guy who comes every 9.30, and for years he's told me, you need to be way better, Tyler, at connecting with people's eyes, Because I have a tendency where I'll kind of look at the back of the room and talk to the back of the room rather than engage people, and it's a challenge, right? Like as a communicator, but there are these ideas of communication, and when there's actors and audiences, there's a wall called the fourth wall. And it's the moment when actors break the wall and you feel like no longer are they performing for you or you're in a monologue of them to you, but you're now engaged in a dialogue. Great, movies do this, comedians are amazing at this. The fourth wall, here's the reality. There's a fifth wall when it comes to preaching the Bible. And maybe it's the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth wall, but it's this. The Holy Spirit's real. God's really real and God's talking through the word all the time and I'm convinced he's talking to you I know he is regardless of where you stand right now God is talking you have to listen so I'm just going to pray for a minute that God would give us as a church and you individually ears to hear to do this one of the the whole process because we all have it confess to God confess to other people God, give us the power to flee and to pursue all that is good, true, and beautiful in him, which encompasses all these things. Let's pray that. And then I'm actually going to ask you guys to stand and do a reading with me um, so we know where all this goes. Father, I pray that you give us ears to hear what the Spirit's saying to us as a church, to each of us as individuals. Um, God, your word tells us, and I believe you're telling us today, that we would not harden our hearts as the Israelites did. But God, you'd make us soft. Soft, hearts to you, the Father of love. Speak to us, Lord. All right, I'm going to ask all of you to stand. Um, This is from Kenyan liturgy and its call and response. So if you could imagine being in a Kenyan African church, um, the reader reads and the congregation responds. Now, if you're in this church, it gets louder each time. But this is very clear of what we do with this stuff and the conviction that we had, is we don't just get convicted and ignore it, we take it to Jesus. So let's do this together, I'm trusting you. We're gonna get louder as we go, which doesn't mean start quiet, it just means get louder. All of our problems, we send to the cross of Christ. All of sins, we send to the cross of Christ. All the devil's work, we send to the cross of Christ. Get louder. And all of our hopes, we set on the risen Christ. Amen? Amen. Have a great week.